Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Aparuta de Sangamatasa Tawara ye Sodavanta Bamunjan to Satang. So this is the full moon of September. And so we've those of us who entered the first Vasa, they said two months, two thirds of the Vasa are, have passed one month to go. And always, you know, like these are forms and structures we use, tradition. And so it's always, you know, like training yourself to live within a form or a structure is, uh, you know, the value, community life, uh, tradition, vinaya, all this is, is putting, using structures and forms, boundaries, uh, to reflect upon. That's why when somebody just suddenly disrobes and leaves uh, in the middle of something that this does not please me in the least, as you may have noticed. <coughs> because it's a kind of agreement, an adult agreement, to, to at least, uh, you know, to, unless there's an urgent reason to leave, like your mother's dying and, and you have to, <laughs> uh, or some urgent reason, but just impulse and that. It's, it's important, that's uh, what forms are for slow us down to be able to get perspective, make commitment in order not to, not as some kind of personal uh, challenge and, and that, but to use it for reflection because we are, we have impulses and our emotions of the present can overwhelm us. We can easily just believe what goes on in our minds and the urgencies or the, or the strong emotions that we might be having uh, and, and they, you know, that can just take us over. But if we're in, in a structure, in an agreed structure, form, then that, that holds us so we can get perspective, we can we, we can stop just Im acting impulsively. Mm. It's learning to, to use structure uh, wisely. Mm. It's very helpful. We are, you know, uh, I remember, you know, I'm a very impulsive person by nature. So, it's easy, you know, that's why I suddenly come to England and ordain nuns and things like that because of I tend to be impulsive. You know, monks that consider things thoroughly would never do what I've done. And so, <laughs> so it does have, has it, it has its advantages, but it, <coughs> but it also, uh, one needs, to reflect, and of course, in uh, we're using traditional forms and uh, traditional vinaya structures uh, for uh, agreements on behavior, action, speech, um, living within uh, the boundaries agreed upon boundaries. <coughs> Now the liberation through through all this. How, how do you how do you 
find liberation through uh, being committed in uh, and taking, you know, putting yourself into a traditional form, uh, a, a hierarchical structure, uh, a discipline that was created 2,500 years ago. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, this is uh, interesting to contemplate. So one can find, one finds it inspiring in the beginning, uh, you know, an ancient tradition like this is probably one of the most ancient monastic traditions existent at this time, so probably uh, several thousand years uh, in some form or another, and, so, and it has its own kind of character and quality and, and uh, uh, that we we might find inspiring, it pleases or it inspires us. <coughs> Though we find ourselves attracted to different traditions or some, you know, this is a personal thing too, what particularly, have, you know, might please or inspires one person may not have the same effect on another. <coughs> But the, the thing is, it's a voluntary, you know, you ask, you, I think it's you ask for the precepts, you ask for the bapacca upasambhada, it's all this, this requesting, asking, uh, rather than uh, the idea of intimidating, uh, threatening you, and uh, coercing you to take on precepts or, or monastic, uh, commitment. So the relationship is is always, you know, to it's an agreement. Uh, when we, uh, when the sangha agrees to accept somebody into its structures, then it's then it's, uh, it's that's the attitude to, to to simplify life, to be able to. Decide, well, within this form, then to develop the awareness. And this actually makes life, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a vehicle. Uh, so it is uh, in itself, anicca dukkanata, you know, it's not, it's not ultimate reality, it's not liberation. But it is uh, the vehicle for uh, that encourages and supports meditation, mindfulness, bhavana. So the, you know, when we concern ourselves too much with the form and endlessly, uh, you know, take, you know, get too involved, too uh, attached to it, then we, you know, we oftentimes cannot see the forest for the trees. The aim is to see the forest. So, in anything that restrains us and, and uh, challenges us, there's always uh, going to be emotional reactions, isn't it? When I found when I was first ordained such strong kind of resistance and rebelliousness living in, in restraint, feeling uh, suffocated, being suffocated by the, by the forms, by the vinaya, because uh, I'd lived a life where I had a, uh, was much more free to do what I wanted. I could follow impulses and, and uh, do what I want, say what I want. And that sense of I'm free to, I'm a free, individual, free to fulfill myself as I so please. <coughs> then joining a particularly conservative tradition in Northeast Thailand, uh, it was uh, going from one extreme to the other. But uh, I always appreciated it because I actually chose 
a strict forest tradition. Uh, I realized I needed to to have boundaries. I I just to follow my own impulses and my own uh, views and opinions. I'd always, I was always getting myself into trouble. And I could see that if I did not learn how to obey, how to surrender, how to give up to something, uh, that I would, I would never develop spiritually. I had that insight when I was a Samanera. Because much of my life, I, I, I lived a life where I manipulated the conditions to get my own way. Or through, you know, I, I, was, I was quite clever to be able to use situations for my own benefit. And uh, so it always seems like, like even in the military or in the university and whatnot, I, I, I could, you know, I, I could definitely assert myself and get my way and, uh, through manipulation, not through surrender, but through figuring out how to work the system. And so that was uh, the kind of mindset that I entered the monastic life with. <clears throat> then the first year in the Samanera, I saw, saw that in myself. And so uh, I had a year as a Samanera, and, and during that year I'd, uh, I knew that I needed, became, I needed to learn how to obey, how to live, how to be under somebody else not just in order to kind of manipulate the system, you know, to kind of uh, grudgingly submit, but to wholeheartedly surrender. And that was the insight. But I didn't know where to go at the time. You know, as I was in a monastery that I knew I, d I didn't want to stay in uh, for, uh, I was to take the, uh, to be a training because uh, I could see I could manipulate myself my way in in that particular monastery, being a big American with a loud voice <laughs> uh, i i could see I could figure out ways to get my own way so and as fate would have it or fortune or destiny or karma, I found myself. Uh, as I made my wish to have a teacher that wouldn't let me have my own way, uh, then the opportunities came along to meet the Venerable Ajahn Chah, who was definitely uh, the, the teacher I was, uh, in the, you know, longing for, looking for. <coughs> so, in my first few years living with Ajahn Chah at Wat Bapong, it was, you know, I could see these tendencies, uh, ways of trying to get my way uh, through various ways that I developed as a lay person. But they didn't work there. And so they could be easily reflected. Uh, it wasn't always, you know, it was pretty hard going sometimes because it's hard to look at yourself. Uh, at your selfishness or your your stubbornness and uh, your arrogance and and then uh, so I was really uh, you know some of it's pretty humiliating because uh, you know so much of my life before had been an avoidance of looking and seeing myself trying to see myself in certain ways. Uh, and prove myself within a society, uh, the, the American society of my time, where uh, you know you were, you could uh, you're supposed to kind of prove who you are, be somebody, stand up for yourself, uh, have strong views and opinions, fight for things, don't get pushed around, don't you know. Work the system as best you can. Have your rights, and uh, these kind of attitudes were the dominant ones of my generation in the 50s. 
But the, what I found most uh, pleasing in the monastic life, as I lived it uh, with Lung Po Cha in Thailand, was was uh, the fact that I didn't. This was not demanded of me. I didn't. The whole system, living under the under the Thai forest tradition, there was there was never that message given to me that I had to assert myself, be somebody, prove myself. No mobiles have gone off yet. <laughs> so I like that. It's a, suddenly a kind of relief I found also in, in the fact that uh, uh, I was uh, the most junior bhikkhu. And, uh, and I was the most exotic bhikkhu. You know, the lineup of Thai monks, Thai forest monks, I was the, the most junior, but the biggest. <laughs> and also I was older than, than, the, than the junior monk, than the Thai monks who were, were newly ordained my generation. So... But uh, the learning how to live within the structure, you know, the idea of the bhikkhu, you, you reflect uh, your position in the structure, how to, how to work within that position, the duties and, uh, of, of somebody within a junior position or senior position or whatever. It's th in order to uh, it made life much more easy than if I was just trying to, you know, try to uh, manipulate my way to get my own to get my own way in the system. It was just a sense of simple surrender to doing what was what was expected and uh, within that structure, <coughs> because that I wasn't really interested in that part of it. You know. What I was interested in was in the liberating practice. To be liberated from these, from this conceit and arrogance and impulsivity and and negativity. Because by the time I became a Buddhist monk, I was really fed up with myself. It was just like uh, the the whole conditioning and emotional habits were were so inadequate to to uh, deal with life in any form. And, uh, you know, I couldn't respect myself. I felt I lost self-respect by being a, a kind of manipulating person, even though I could kind of, you know, think, well, I'm very clever and I can get away with things. But that didn't lead to what I call self-respect. In fact, I found, you know, the, the more I kind of got my way in uh, to manipulation, the m less respect I had for myself. <laughs> so, by, before I, I remember being in the graduate school in Berkeley, uh, this feeling, a total lack of self-respect, of hearing otapa. Not that I was doing anything all that bad, but just a kind of sleaziness, sloppiness, second-rate uh, kind of way I was living. Uh, I could not respect that on uh, somebody who was doing it, nor in myself. So then I found committing myself into the monastic form was, uh, I respected that. I respected I could see Lung Po Cha, I could see Buddhist monks, nuns in Thailand who I felt an enormous respect for because of just the, the quality of their life, the commitment to something that, I, you know, was, was not for just for selfish ends or for, you know, making money or, or uh, 
becoming successful in the society, but in actually, you know, making a commitment towards a, a, a structure of restraint in order to, uh, to give up one's arrogance and, and conceit. So, um, just re- learning from this, this uh, the the uh, monastic life, you know, if it's it's just if if it's just lived for some kind of personal gain or or just trying to use it or to just put up with it, uh, many people become very inspired and idealize it. And then when when they're in it, then they start, you know, complaining and, and begrudging because they can't get their own way or it isn't what they had expected. But this is all part of the path, really, in, in order to see this sense of me and mine and what I want, what I think, what should or shouldn't be. It's uh, it's a moral commitment. Uh, you know the the rights we have are moral ones. So it's uh, and this I think is in the world today. <coughs> you know the endless wars and corruption and uh, uh, that we see in our societies and all over the planet. The horrible things that are going on because. Uh, people aren't, you know, they don't respect their moral rights. They're demanding personal rights for freedom and and um, having education and having this and having that. But what really is something to value are the moral, the things of the, we have our moral rights. You know, nobody, no matter the, the Dalai Lama, Sangharaj of Thailand, myself, uh, the Mer- uh, whatever high-ranking Buddhist monk might come along and they kill his chicken to, to a monk or a nun, you say, I cannot do that, Venerable Sir. <laughs> it's against the moral precept. <laughs> but this is... This sense of a self, uh, discontentment, the negativity, you know, it's uh, the complaining mind. Uh, just, this needs to be recognized. I'm not asking you not to, to, to stop, you know, that you shouldn't have these emotions, but, but that's part of the path, be able to put them in that perspective. They are what they are, their conditions arising, ceasing. So that we, we, I could see when I, when I first uh, was with Lung Po Cha, and, you know, I was a real complainer. Uh, a mind that complained endlessly. I complained when I was a layman. When I was in the Navy for four years, I really learned how to complain in the Navy. In the American Navy, we just complained about everything. And, uh, you know, it was... It was too hot or too cold. The food was rotten. It was bad, and this, and uh, you know, you're in a whole system. That was the, that was the <coughs> that was the uh, general atmosphere of four years living in in a military uh, situation, living in military situations where all you did was gripe, complain, and bitch about everything. These are the words we used. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I uh, left the Navy, I was highly conditioned to do that. You know, I just found, you know, four years of of living in in such situations is very contagious. 
And so it carried on uh, into uh, finishing my university training and into professions. I worked for the Red Cross and was a teacher and so forth. But, but the tendency, the momentum of that uh, endless complaining, griping about things was, uh, was very much a strong habit. So when I entered the monastic, uh, the monastery, then uh, once the kind of romantic days, the kind of inspired moments and, and kind of naive uh, attitudes were finished, then I started complaining. Because this was the habit of my, you know, that I developed. So it was learning to, I began to notice, I listened to myself complaining. Listened to my complaining mind. I, I, because I couldn't speak Thai at the time, I had no one to complain to. <coughs> so, and there was nobody there that could speak English, so I couldn't complain to anybody in English either. No, I spent time complaining to myself. But listening, and I could see, do I really want to end up like this, being a, you know, an old man that just complains till he dies? This, it's just an ugly kind of mental state. When, when I began to see it, it was, uh, you know, I didn't, it's not a, a, a habit, an emotional habit that I respect in, in myself or in others. It's not a, a habit I want to perpetuate in my life. So I began to really uh, meditate on it. Notice that it's arising and its absence, its cessation. Get to know this by listening, by receiving my own complaints. Rather than letting them take me over. And, and direct my, you know, take, take me over into really believing them. So this takes a strong determination and a confidence in, in, uh, in mindfulness. And, you know, encourage you to develop this uh, upayas or skillful means that work for you. Like when I talk about listening to myself, uh, I found that was a that was a skillful means. I learned to listen. I would deliberately complain. You know, I'd, I'd listen to myself complaining. And, and with intention to listen. And, and then I'd deliberately complain to myself and listen to it. Just to have that perspective of the awareness listening to this this habit, this complaining habit. So it's like learning to, to put yourself to rest in this state of awareness where you can actually pay attention and notice the complaining tendency because it is a rise of seizures. Sometimes it used to go on when there was nothing to complain about. You know, it, it used to be such a constant habit that even when there was nothing to complain about, I'd be complaining about the fact there was nothing to complain. <laughs> Couldn't win with that. So, then uh, I had uh, just learning to, to, to trust in that relationship of the awareness, listening, noticing, receiving the condition. So the awareness is the unconditioned, isn't it? That's the puto, the unconditioned. The, the complaining habit is the condition. So being, do, you know, do I want to be in that state of the, to, to rest in the unconditioned, or am I going to follow this, this condition thing all the time? Well, I could see just by reflecting in this way that if I, you know, just following these complaining, this complaining mind, then it just, you know, it, it, there's no end to it. It just goes on and on and on and makes life 
quite depressing and miserable. Makes me an unpleasant person to be around. If all I do is complain, who wants to, who wants to be with me if that's all I ever do? <coughs> so, just my getting to recognize the problem, not trying to suppress it, not trying to make myself into somebody who doesn't complain, but in actually using the very condition I'm experiencing for awareness. And I found a lot of insight coming out of that. I mean, powerful insights were just by using the, the, the conditions that, that I'm experiencing, my own creation, using those, the, the, the doubting habit of the mind. When I was a seminarian before I met Lung Po Cha, I, I could see right away when they, when I was reading uh, Word of the Buddha and, and practicing with that. And then, of course, I also read the first uh, section of Visuddhimagga on morality, <coughs> which I found very inspiring. But also I recognized the, the, uh, the Lopa Dosa Moa type. They talk about three different types of characters, the greedy type, the, the angry type, and the deluded type. So then I thought, well, I'd like, what type am I? You know, what, where, what is my character? Am I greedy? Well, I describe myself as greedy or angry or deluded. And so I could see that I had all three qualities in abundance, but you know, greed, you know, even though I can be very greedy, it's not particularly a problem with me. I mean, uh, it, you know, it's not, I wouldn't, uh, that's not how I would really describe myself, is greedy. Angry, I've got plenty of that. But I know, uh, but what really resonated was the deluded, the moha the moha jirit. <coughs> and the reason for that is because of I'm such a skeptical person. I'm a, I've been plagued my whole life by doubts. <coughs> and uh, this, 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 uh, this doubt was the, seemed to hang around me like a, a dark cloud, follow me everywhere. Uh, so uncertain and insecure around everything. And uh, uh, you know, that's why I could never be a Christian, because I just so full of doubts and skeptical, you know, why? Why is it like that? How could God create the, the world in seven days? What is, how could a physical body resurrect up into heaven after its death? <laughs> And then, you know, go to the vicar and he gives you the answers that he's supposed to give you and it still doesn't make any sense. Doubt, doubt, doubt. So, in, as a summoner, I, I, could, I kind of took that up, doubting, and addressed it very directly. You know, so I mean, in, in practice, it's because doubting is always a result of thinking. And uh, and because I was such a, a, a you know an obsessed thinker, then the, then the doubting was the result of that. I just could always figure things out and think 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 about how things should or shouldn't be. And and uh, you know the first few months that I was a Samanera uh, reading, I just had that little book that I give you, the Word of the Buddha, Yanati Loka. I reviewed that, and I found it so fascinating because I actually, even though it's a kind of, you know, if I'd read it before, I probably wouldn't have been very interested in it because it's not particularly kind of enthralling uh, description of Dhamma, but it's, it's lists of things. But being able to, to uh, put it into practice, to apply it to experience, 
uh, and penetrate, you know, kind of really make those Four Noble Truths, you know, real for me, not just theory, theories, Buddhist ideals or Buddhist, I Buddhist doctrine. And so I, on the, the first few months I had tremendous insights just by thinking about the Dhamma, figuring it out. Because uh, so much of the description, you know, like five khandas and all this kind of thing, didn't really mean much to me when I first started. I mean, I could read the definitions, uh, rupa khanda, the b b body or form or whatever, and I could, but I didn't really connect how, you know, how the rupa weight in the sanya sankara vijnana, in terms of I could, I had ideas or definitions in English. But the reality of the five khandas as here and now, that was what really enthralled me, was beginning to see it in the, you know, what is this right now? What is sankara, sanya, vedana, vijnana, now, rupa, rather than just, just uh, you know, defining it and translating or using English equivalence to make it to make it more understandable. <coughs> with Paticca Samupada years ago here with, on the winter's retreat I, I spent two years just reflecting on Paticca Samupada, the dependent origination, because that absolutely didn't make sense to me. You know, how you could connect um, Avicca, Bhajya, Sankara, Sankara, Bhajya, Vinyana, Nama Rupa, and Salayatana, and all that. How does that all connect? You know, in the Western mind, it's just, just no, it, you know, they're just terms, and they don't, you know, how does it flow? What does it really mean? What, how does it apply to my experience now? So I'm taking, just working with that, with that, Paticca uh, Samupada. I found very uh, kind of interesting because I'm, I, I was, it wasn't just an intellectual trying to kind of figure it out in, in my brain, but applying it to experience here and now. Learning to take these, these teachings of the Buddha, but internalize them. You know, they're about here and now. They're about awareness, about me as I am experiencing this moment right now in whatever quality or way that I happen to be experiencing it. But having had kind of a good grasp of the bariati of the Four Noble Truths, uh, you know, I realized that, the, that I was not liberated. But it certainly increased my faith, you know, sadha increased. Because it suddenly all made wonderful sense to me, just on the intellectual level, as I began to appreciate the, it's the, the structure of the scripture, of the suttas, especially the, the uh, Dhammajaka Pawantana, the Four Noble Truths. Then, but how to, uh, the bhati-bhat, bhariyati is the study of the scripture, learning the teaching, then the bhati-bhat is the practice. Bhati-weight is the result of the practice. So you have the, these three, bhariyati, bhati-bhati, bhati-weighty in Pali, which means the, the uh, study of the, the, the doctrine or the teaching, the, you know, the intellectual side of it, the, the practice, the bhati-bhat, the pavana, and then the result, bhati-weight. So notice that this structure is uh, uh, the Buddha used. Is to have, have the con you know, first you start with the concept, the intellect, understanding it rationally, and then leads into applying that to the present moment, and then the result from that is what? 
the, the result, as I began to uh, practice with those Four Noble Truths, the three aspects of each truth, uh, because the, each as, yeah, the three aspects are, are that. The, you can actually apply like dukkha. There is dukkha, there is suffering, is the bariyati. Uh, you should, uh, the batibhat the is uh, dukkha, suffering should be understood. Batiwait is uh, dukkha has been understood. So these are the three insights into the first noble truth. And the second noble truth, uh, the, uh, there is the origin of dukkha, suffering, which is the attachment to the three kinds of desire. Kamadana, pavadana, vipavadana. So that's the uh, variati side. You take that bit, the samudhaya, the, the cause, or the origin of suffering. But apply that to experience here and now. Then, bhati-bhat, it should be let go of. You should, this, the, the practice of letting go is about the second noble truth. Let go of desire. It doesn't mean suppressing or getting rid of desire, as I've said many times. But the, the insight in the sec is all about letting go of the causes of suffering. Letting go of desire, in other words. Kamadana, bhavadana, vipavadana. Kamadana is the desire for sensory pleasure through the eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. Kamadana, desire for pleasure, uh, for pleasurable sense experiences. Pavadana, desire for becoming, wanting to become something. Uh, Vipavadana, desire to get rid of things. And so I could see with Vipavadana, I was also one of these people that wanted to get, I was a, a great kind of annihilator. I'm an annihilationist, I found out when I started contemplating Vipavadana. I've never been an eternalist, like going to heaven for eternity in a happy state of bliss. Never appealed to me. You know, it never, was never, when the Jehovah's Witnesses proclaimed this day, I thought, I don't want to go there. <clears throat> so, uh, then Vipavadana, the idea of just annihilation. I quite like that, actually. Oblivion, of appeals, actually. Just disappearing into nothing. Was not, a, you know, was not a particularly unpleasant prospect for me. Though so I could see in my, in my, my doubting, deluded, annihilating character, But seeing that attachment to these desires to annihilate, to be, to disappear, desire for becoming, uh, becoming something, or desire for ple uh, sensory pleasures all the time, that attachment—it's not—it's not a desire itself that's pointed. It's the attachment to desire out of ignorance. So then the insight: let go. So practicing letting go. And by the time I arrived at Wat Bapong, I was that was my practice, letting go. Letting go of desire was I'd had insight into that and that was my that was my insight by the time I arrived at and met Ajahn Chah. So living there in the Wat Bapong um, was, uh, you know, I felt I really liked the monastery. You know, it was a, um, of, you know, it was quite, um, I didn't see many monasteries 
before that I really wanted to live in. But when I went to Wat Bapong, I, I uh, immediately liked the place and, and took to the teacher, even though I couldn't understand anything he said. <laughs> so, uh, but still, the, you know, living you know, living there for four years or so uh, in that one monastery was would bring up because all kinds of mental states of of uh, kind of infatuation, uh, you know, really loving it and then hating it and then being critical of it and and wanting to leave it and and so forth. Uh, it went through the whole thing, but the point of the practice lie in recognizing the attachment to these desires. So you learned a lot, wanting, uh, you know, Gamadana, uh, uh, it was so limited there to have sense, sense pleasures. So what happens when you're under these very restrained conditions, uh, celibate life and, and alms mendicancy, is that you, uh, your, your desire for sense pleasures fix on the most silly things, like, like the sugar obsessions. Because uh, Buddha allowed us to have sugar in the afternoon, and, and then I would just think about sugar all afternoon. Because <laughs> uh, that was the one allowed sense pleasure. And so I, I started just noticing that, like, what is sense pleasure? What is uh, the reality of sense pleasure? What is, why do I desire sugar? And because it was allowed, I wasn't breaking any rule if I was, I was eating sugar. But I never ate sugar when I was a lay person. It was beyond such gross behavior. <laughs> But uh, as a baker, when when everything else is forbidden, then it seems like your 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 gamma danha, you know, the desire for sense pleasures moves to what is allowed. So it it's affected on the sugar allowance. And one day I remember taking some sugar and putting it on my tongue, and just really tasting sweetness. You know, being totally committed to enjoying sweetness. And, and I could see, you know, I just really enjoyed that. You know, let it kind of melt on the tongue and let it just, and be fully with the pleasurable experience. And then I could see immediately I wanted another, you know, just by reflecting that, that as soon as that one was uh, that one was, there was this immediate impulse to take another spoonful of sugar. And then like watching how this works, this, the, the desire for, for a sensory pleasure. Or how even if there wasn't any sugar, then I'd start fantasizing how to get sugar, where I could get, who had it, and where I could get some. And then kind of the, the mind holding on to what is allowed, and then, then seeing what, how I could get it, you know, manipulate the conditions so I get what I want. So, but the awareness of this, you know, the, the cause of suffering is the attachment, is the ubadana to the desire. Apply that to vipavadana, desire to get rid of desire. Desire to get rid of greed, of lust, of of uh, anger, fear, and jealousy, and that this desire to not exist. I began to recognize these desires, and through through noticing and 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 recognizing desire, just in that very noting of desire is non-attachment, is letting go, actually. It's through the awareness. The awareness, awareness is the liberation itself. So, 
then the uh, practice, and then the but he wait the the result. I really through reviewing that over and over again the three kinds of desires attachment. So I really knew what bow desire to become was, because I'm also a, a characterized a very bow dunha type person, wanting to become an arahant, wanting to become a stream emperor, wanting to become a good bhikkhu, wanting to become all kinds of good things, wanting to you know always this this being a monk and wanting to become something, practicing in order to become something. Uh, a desire to become enlightened. So, I mean, these are good desires. Desire doesn't necessarily mean uh, anything bad, but desire is desire. And, and so desire always has this, this energetic movement. It's a pushy kind of experience, isn't it, that you can witness in yourself. Always looking for something, a womb to be born into. in the sense world or becoming world, or the desire to just get rid of the whole lot, annihilate the whole lot, destroy, oblivion, to get rid of what I don't like just through annihilating it. So, but these desires had to be fully seen in consciousness. As a, you know, I could understand them intellectually well enough, but, but really observing them, to having the patience and willingness to repeatedly observe until the real insight into that second noble truth had been completed. Till I had that bhati weight that, you know, the causes of desire, the letting go has been, the letting go has been accomplished. So this is, you know, this is the, uh, then that leads to the third noble truth, the cessation, the reality of cessation, that uh, suffering nature, if it arises, it ceases. And so by letting go, by stopping this, not grasping these desires, doesn't mean you don't have any more desire. It means you stop, the, you let go, so you don't grasp them anymore. So then you can be aware of the cessation of desire. Dhamma-dhanna, bhava-dhanna, vipu-dhanna. You actually notice realize. So in, in the Third Noble Truth, the, the Bariati statement, there is uh, the end of suffering, the Third Noble Truth. The, the second aspect, the, the Bhati Bhati is, uh, it should be, uh, cessation should be realized. And then uh, cessation has been realized. So that's the bariati, bati, 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 wait sequence. So there is cessation of suffering, as the Buddha said. So that's the third noble truth. It should be realized. What is reality? What is realization? They use the English word real. Should be realized. In Thai, they say Tam Hai Jang, which means make it clear. Cessation, conscious clarity around the end of, end of desire. Not desire wiped out totally, is it? Because that's not what happens. This is a desire realm. So you're not going to annihilate desire. Uh, that's not the cessation that the, of the third noble truth. It's not a, a wipeout. Uh, of desire, but through letting go of desire, you're actually uh, witnessing the, the cessation of it, because desire is a condition that arises and ceases. So you have cessation should be realized, and then the bhati wait, cessation has been realized. 
which takes us to the fourth noble truth, the Eightfold Path. That, gets, that sounds complicated, but it's really very simple. <laughs> uh, right understanding, samaditi, samasangapo, and so forth. What this means is uh, from, from the insight into cessation, then there's right understanding. Samaditi is fulfilled. right understanding. Uh, and then this, then the path is very clear, isn't it? It's very clear. It's, n- it's non-grasping. Awareness. Being, you know, pavana, or this, what they call, um, is the word they use. Cultivate. It should be cultivated. Practice or pavana. And then the bhati the weight is, it has been practiced. It has, the pavana has been, the path has been cultivated. <coughs> so notice this, this is a reflective form, isn't it? It's, you're really looking at yourself. You're not trying to, you know, you don't, you don't cultivate the path just as some kind of mental, uh, intellectual game. But it's, it's seen you know, from here, from pure consciousness, you you free yourself from this blind, from these delusions that we create through ignorance. So the eightfold path: samaditi, samasangapo, right, right understanding, right attitude or intention. You know, once you have that, that see that then there's not, no other direction to go in but the Eightfold Path. So samawaja, right speech, right action, right livelihood is like, that's, you know, <coughs> we still have a life to live in a human form. How am I going to live it? You know, right, well, it's like I'm taking on responsibility and I'm going to live, you know, to use speech, action, livelihood, uh, in a way that's harmless, at least, skillful. So, like a monastic life is ideal for that, isn't it? It's a very skillful lifestyle where right speech, right action, right livelihood can can be easily, uh, you know. Is part of it. Part of this. It's, it's that's the practice. That's the way of the life. That's what it's for to to create in in this realm in this modern society an opportunity for samawaja, sama gamanto, sama chivo, and then sama samadhi, sama vayamo, sama sati, sama samadhi. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. This is like emotional balance, isn't it? The heart, the, this sense of the jitta and the heart. There's a balance, uh, equanimity. We're not, no longer just victims of emotional habit. Just taking over, going up and down and into heaven and then dropping to hell and elated and depressed by the emotional habits we have. We find balance, steadiness, stability in awareness. So what this really means is the awareness, the way of living life fully aware. <coughs> awareness is the gate to the deathless. So the, that's the only way, that's the only door there is. There's nothing in the future or and then nowhere else. It's here and now. And awareness is also the, the deathless and the path and Nibbana. So it all, you know, the, in just that simple, almost 
you know, unnoticed ability we all have of awareness is liberation. So it's cultivating that, learning to, to use the life we live here for awareness. And so, I, you know, I really, you know, implore you to, to really develop the awareness here. Because too many of you don't bother. You're so involved in all other kind of things. And doubts and worries and complaints and wanting to go somewhere else or, you know, there's so much, so much grist for the mill living here, you know, you don't need to go anywhere else. If you're willing to make that commitment and determination to develop the path, because it's, you know, it's, this is the point of the life of being a samana. This is what we're here for. This is our aim. <coughs> and, it, and it works. You know, it's not, it's not just, I'm not speaking from just some kind of, you know, romantic perspective on Buddhism. And I'm too old for that. <laughs> and I've gone through the disillusionment with Buddhism. You know, I've been inspired and disillusioned and I've been through the whole gamut of emotional reactions to form and tradition and Vinaya and all the rest. So it's not that I've never, uh, you know, had to deal with those, those kind of emotions, but, but it's, it's the, the kind of determination. You have to be really, you know, very determined to, to use whatever is happening. Like in, in a lie over here in, in Hiramabhati in the past 20 years, how many disrobings of people. You know, that's a hard one to bear, personally. So you, you know, so when anybody disrobes and everybody shakes. <coughs> well, maybe I'm wasting my life, you know, that monk had 20 mosses and he disrobed and probably it doesn't work and we get a call, and that's the very thing you should be looking at. You know, this is a, it doesn't matter if everybody disrobes, if you can really observe. You know, this is not the point of, of, of us all supporting your monastic life and, and, and saying how wonderful monasticism is just so you, you want to continue. How many of you have the real integrity to make the life work for you, even if, if everybody should leave. You know, and ask yourself, what are you doing? What do you, what are you, do you really want liberation? Is, is your aspiration really for liberation or what? Right, uh, and if it is for liberation, then use, I mean, everything is, is the path. And uh, the disillusionments, the the losses, the disappointment, the, the good times, the bad times, the inspiration, the desperation. It's all, and we just keep going. Like, like when uh, some of the monks disrobed in the beginning, up in Ajahn Ananda and people like that. That's very heartbreaking as an uh, as emotional experience, isn't it? Your best friends leave, run away. And you're you know, you 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 get close, you get strong bonds in monastic life. So then, you feel this. I felt this like a broken heart, something just so uh, sad and grief-stricken, and yet that was also part of the path, isn't it? It's it's it was as much, you know, to be able to not just get stuck in that emotion. It wasn't like dismissing or suppressing or denying, but making it, allowing it to be fully received in consciousness, totally accepted, the grief, the broken heart, and to receive it and, and let it be until it naturally ceases. 
So you find your, your strength in your awareness, that kind of unshakableness in the awareness, not in, in having a lot of good friends supporting a lifestyle for you. We're not a cult <clears throat> or, you know, a, not a cult of trying to affirm that our group is the best and that we've all got to hang together and make it work and, and support the team. Not asking that of you, you know, but to, to really, uh, because I don't want a cult or just a, a group of people who, ha who toe the party line but awaken, enlighten individual. So, I'll leave that with you to contemplate. <laughs>